BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we have the great Lee Child, a writer who needs no introduction. Not only has Lee sold over 100 million books in his career— a figure he reached years ago. But in 2020, for services to literature, the Royal Crown made him a commander of the Order of the British Empire in a ceremony that was conducted by then Prince Charles, now King Charles III. So for a guy born in England to fairly modest beginnings, that is pretty cool. Lee, welcome to the show. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me on. It's good to see you again after all these uh, months of um, disruption. And what people may not know, Doug and I are in the same book club. Uh, (laughs) So we have sat around discussing all kinds of topics uh, many evenings. It is great to see you. We actually have our bottle of champagne here, uh, which was your your cocktail of choice, but Mm -hmm. lots of things to celebrate, including our first time in the same room and three, four years, something Unbelievable, like that. isn't it? How we just had a gap, you know, a gap in life. Yeah. Well, you, you haven't missed a beat, notwithstanding all that. I, I remember seeing this article on you getting your, your honor from the crown and Charles and uh, the photos in the Daily Mail had you eye to eye and knowing you, I was thinking, how is that possible? <laughs> then you look to the bottom of the photo and he's standing on a giant step in front of you. Yeah. It was a very sweet, uh, it was a very sweet occasion. I mean, I was thrilled to get the award. It's everything in Britain is is royal in terms of the name of it and something to do with history of the empire and all that stuff. But what it really is, that CBE level is, um, it's like the National Medal for the Arts or something like that. It was just a really nice recognition that, not just for me, but for for all of us, all thriller writers and thriller readers you know we matter now it's not just a guilty pleasure or something that needs to be sort of hidden away from the real literature it's accepted as uh, for what it is well you've touched so many lives i mean i i don't know what is the number up to 100 million i think you hit like five years ago yeah that's uh you know it sounds absolutely terrible to say it but we don't count anymore you know it's just <laughs> right. it's virtually not possible well speaking of cbe the other thing i noticed on that the funny thing is as i was reading this article is that you might be the least pretentious person I know. So the ribbons and the medals and the crown, I was kind of like, this is kind of not really Lee's thing. But I did notice 
that Elvis Costello was there, and I am a fan of Elvis uh-huh. Costello, but I was proud to see that you were the commander of the British Order, while he is only an officer, which is like a level or two below you. That's right. And uh, yeah, it was fun. I mean, there's there's always a random bunch of people that are getting these awards. And I thought it was going to be a little uh, stiff and formal for my taste, but it, it was sweet. It was really nice. We uh, drove in to Buckingham Palace, you know, through the gate, through the archway into the quadrangle in back. And the staff were lovely. The people were lovely. It was this random assortment of uh, people getting awards that were fun to talk to. And the uh, it, it was a long ceremony, but it was uh, really good fun. And uh, you're right about, yeah, Charles was standing on a box, which I assume is for the status, you know. Right. But actually, yeah, it, me- it meant that we, we could look each other in the eye. And uh, he said, it's very nice of you to take a... A day off writing to come and get this. And so is Charles or Harry and Meghan, are they Reacher fans? I, I think not, probably. I mean, I don't know about Harry and Meghan, they may be, but um, usually there's a certain type of person who tells you that whether they are or not. And I really appreciate the ones that are honest about it. For instance, I met Obama uh, one time uh, through a mutual friend. And uh, he said, I haven't read any of your books, which is a lot better, in my opinion, than fudging it right, or trying to, fake it. You know, trying to squeeze around it. And I said, yeah, I'm sure you've got more important things to do. So we were also texting about you coming on the show here, and it was the week the Queen passed, and you were in England at the time. What, what was it like over there? It was uh, really odd. It was, you know, there are a huge number, a substantial minority of people who are true fans of the royal family in, in a way that without wishing to trivialize it at all, it, it, there, it's like people here are, are like crazy fans of daytime soaps or whatever. They get really involved with the whole narrative. They're obsessed by it. And there's a large number of people like that. Um, for me personally, I'm not one of those um, you know, if you or I or anybody had to design a modern country, I don't think we would include a hereditary monarchy uh, for head of state. We just wouldn't. Um, so it's all a bit peculiar to me. I did feel that it was um, the end of an era in the sense that my mother was born the same year as the Queen and uh, got married around the same time, had four kids the same as the Queen, and even looked a bit like the Queen in that generic sort of Englishwoman way. So, and she died five years ago now. And so the Queen dying this year, for me, that was the definitive end of that generation. I just felt that generation has now gone. The wartime generation, the post-war generation has now ended. And it did feel in a symbolic way that we were in a new era. But all the hoopla, I mean, endless hoopla. It was, um, you know, television canceled and just solemn broadcasts the whole time, coverage of the events that preceded and surrounded the funeral. Um, That stuff was wall to wall. And I think thinking about it seriously, politically, this is, or that was, the, the moment of maximum vulnerability for... Uh, the monarchy, because as as we just said, you know, it is a bit silly that that's what what we have. Right, it was totally ornamental. But. Com- yeah, completely ornamental, somewhat figurehead, although slightly less than you think. There have been revelations about what actually goes on behind the scenes. But there was a mood that I've sensed for years over there, which was that, yeah, this monarchy thing is, 
you know, it was okay in history, but really, come on, 21st century, we need to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but everybody sort of deferred to the queen herself, you know, this very venerable old lady who'd been there forever. And the mood was, well, yeah, but we'll think about that when she's gone. So when she did pass away, it created a need, I think, on the part of the establishment to really steamroller everything, to really bulldoze it through with all that pomp and all that ceremony in order to somehow stake the case that the monarchy should survive and that um, to, to quash that slightly Republican instinct that was yeah. likely well, I mean, I hope it survives. I, I'm not, uh, you know, certainly we... we don't want have one here over in America by choice, but I I enjoy watching and and I like I'm I like traditions that that maintain. It's going to have to you know the church needs to modernize the the monarchy will have to modernize, but losing the queen did feel like it was the loss of this era of poise and reservedness that you know in the age of social media where everyone's sort of putting everything out there all the time and almost like with the. Uh, yeah, that's you know, the what sense I meant. that people want to see that all the time. It's just crazy. It's what I meant about the end of that generation, yeah. that, you know, quiet, dutiful generation that would just put up with things, uh, very different from what we have now. But yeah, you know, I'm a pragmatic person when it comes to politics. And uh, sure, in my head, I could design a better system. But you, you know what it would be like to, mm -hmm. to get any kind of constitutional agreement or something like that. They'd be talking for 30 years. It's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. So the other thing we were texting about was the cocktail you're going to choose for the show. And uh, you replied to me, literally, it's coffee black and good champagne. So uh, we, we went with champagne, which I'm going to try to open here while we're talking. and yep. uh, We'll get the sound effect with a bit of luck. We'll definitely, yeah. So yeah. we either have clinking ice against glasses mm -hmm. here, or in this case, a champagne cork. And I better, if I get, pop this thing and get champagne all over the soundboard, I'm going to get in some <laughs> trouble with Sirius. Yeah. Oh, there we, there go. we go. I hope everybody heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, you don't you don't want to pour liquid down the uh, the mixing desk. That is generally speaking a no no. Although in the this new digital age, who knows? Well, cheers. Great to see you. Cheers, Doc. Great to see you. So I, I want to go back to then Lee Child, the early years. And uh, you are a tall person now, but you also grew tall early. And I I know that. Uh, you know, in the schoolyard, you were like the schoolyard tough, and kids would give you a little protection money to keep the bullies away from them. Yeah, it started out with my uh, elder brother, who was um, a very clever kid, you know, very smart, um, but a little scrawny guy. And um, the two things together, being, being scrawny but also being clever in that peculiar way that kids have, that just put a big target on his back. And by contrast, I was born huge, and I ate everything, and I, I was this big, solid kid, uh, two, and a little, two and a bit years younger than my elder brother. And, and so when I was ready to start elementary school, my parents, who were very proper, you know, very, very restrained, proper, middle-class English parents, and it killed them to say so. They said, you've got to go and make sure your brother's okay at the start of every, uh, every break. And so that was my, we called it playtime in, in British schools. Um, you know, you'd be let out for recess. And uh, my first job was to run out into the yard, find out wherever Richard was, 
uh, haul off whoever was punching him or pulling his ears, give him a smack, and then go and play with my own friends. And from that, it sort of built up. Other kids noticed this happening. And uh, I started this kind of mutual aid society. I mean, protection money sounds a little sinister. <laughs> right, you weren't in the mob or anything. I was <laughs> not in the mob at that point. But I, if they, I was a poor kid, and so if they gave me a cookie or something like that from their lunchbox, then they were in my club. And if they were in my club, they were entitled to protection should something go wrong. And it did a couple of times. You know, there would be kids getting bullied or kids getting picked on. And they would say, this guy did this to me. And so my end of the deal was I would follow him home um, after school and whichever dark alley or back street we found ourselves on, I would say, you know, don't do that again and leave him in a heap on the sidewalk and then go home to my house, by which time probably their mother was calling my mother and I would have to deny everything. And this this sounds almost like an autobiographical thing of, of Reacher in a way, but it actually reminds me a little bit of the night we met, a group of writers were coming over to my apartment. I, so I knew many of the writers in the room, but I hadn't met you yet. You came in, you had jeans and like a leather bomber jacket on. Most of the writers there were sort of bookish looking. And I was thinking to myself, if some stranger came in here and looked around the room, they could clearly point, Reacher is from that guy over there. You have this sort of effortless, I don't know, cool vibe about you. Well, thanks. I remember that very well. I was, uh, I mean, that is, the you set up a great service there. We would get together at your place, uh, a, a disparate and varied selection of authors and also uh, TV people mm-hmm. that you wouldn't expect to necessarily see in the same room at the same time. And uh, I loved it. It was, I love people. I love perspectives and opinions and um, just seeing how, what they think, what they're doing. And it was fascinating from that point of view. It's nice to get together for you know, people who have in such a solitary profession to be able to get together like that is nice. It's a release because you don't find it in your working day as much. That's huge. And that's something that people don't understand about being a writer. It's incredibly lonely. And uh, especially my previous job was in television, which is mm-hmm. unbelievably social. You know, it's a team. Uh, whatever you're doing, you're working with a team of at least five, six, seven other people that are uh, passionate and fun and young and energetic. And they've got all the jokes and all the stories and all that good stuff and then you you leave that and you become a writer you, you literally go months without seeing anybody else yeah. and uh, that can be a burden i, I want to talk about the tv stuff a bit so you, you went from school you studied law a bit before you got into I did. tv yeah i did that because partly i didn't know what i wanted to to study at university back then for my generation for a person like me with the education that i'd had it was absolutely inevitable that I would go to a prestigious college, uh, you know, just like night follows day. That was the track. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. I, I didn't really see studying anything vocationally. I thought, first of all, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. And secondly, I think vocational training is kind of dull. So I just looked for a subject that that I thought, what what do I like? I like history. I like economics. I like politics. I like sociology. I like language. And it suddenly struck me that the law is all of that uh, combined. You know, a law that is written in any particular year reflects the history, the politics, the economics, and social conditions of that year. And so it was a really great insight into uh, how the world works, Uh, especially if you're not going to become a lawyer because you don't care if you're top of the class. You know, you can pursue the things that really fascinate you. You can ignore the boring stuff. 
and it teaches uh, you how to think, think clearly and write yeah. clearly. And, and Abs- uh, yeah, write clearly is is a thing, and think clearly. That and it sets you up for the rest of your life. Um, in detail, you're out of date the day after you graduate because the law changes constantly. But in principle, you know what is what, mm-hmm. and you know what is likely to be true or possible, and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, get fears that they've done this wrong or that wrong, or they're in trouble for this or that. And you just know, no, that that can't possibly work that way. That's yeah. not right. You're okay. It's a great subject to study if at a general interest. Yeah. So then you went on to a 20-year television career. Yeah, I was a theater person initially. I loved the theater, still do. Uh, there is nothing more just gorgeous and hypnotic than putting on a show with a bunch of great people, um, especially with the instantaneous feedback you get with theater. You know, it's live. Mm-hmm. Feedback is is that second. You know, you're not waiting for a review or anything. And But, you know, the theater is so insecure. It's so, it's so badly what, uh, paid. The actors in it? Or what do you mean by insecure? Well, yeah, in terms of the work you get, you know, if you're an actor, certainly you can go months out of work. If you are a backstage person, which I was, you you can be stuck for years in the same sort of job at, mm-hmm. at fairly low pay. Plus, and you'll, you know, you'll laugh at this, but maybe you remember being a sort of earnest youth. I was, I was trying to think it through. And the theater, really all it needs is actors and a script. That's, that's the elements that are essential to theater. And backstage people, you know, I was doing lighting, I was doing sound. We expect that in a Broadway kind of a way, but it's not germane to the proposition. So I thought, where actually do backstage people become really necessary? And that, of course, was television, because television can't happen without those backstage technicians. And so I thought I'll move to television after college, which I did. And um, yeah, it was for an English... Vertically oriented, uh, vertically kind of integrated, is that what they call it? Um, Broadcaster as well as producer. Right. And so I got there um, at a lucky time. They were just starting out the most amazing documentary strands and also drama. Just hit a golden era for drama. Mm -hmm. Uh, We made Brideshead Revisited, Jewel in the Crown, Prime Suspect, Cracker, shows like that, just one after the other. It was a a gorgeous golden age, and I was sad to see it go, you know, see it be sort of trashed and vandalized. But fortunately for every Reacher fan, it did go, or at least you went out the door. So at this point, you're around 40, which is an interesting things. A number of writers we both know came into writing as sort of a second act, like Amor Tolls, for example, had a big finance career for 20 years and then started writing his books. Joe Cannon was a publishing executive. My first book was when I was 40, and I used to work in technology. And so you're about 40. When you first leave, you're still walking around as Jim Grant. You're not, uh, yeah. Lee Child does not yet exist as, a, as an entity, and Jack Reacher certainly hasn't been on a bookshelf. You're with your wife, and you're trying to figure out the rent and the meals and why you work on a draft. Yeah, and I, you know what you just said about almost every decent writer is a second phase person, and I think that there's something crucial about that. I really do think that it's something that not only can you, but you should do it when you're older, when the gas tank is full, when you've seen a bit of life, when you mm-hmm. have developed all those um, disciplines, and uh, you know you're not the idiot you were when you were 20. Right. You're a different person now. That's the time to start writing, and I sense that. I know Hemingway wrote The Sun Also Rises when he was, he was probably writing it, I think published when he was 
26 or writing was 25. I was an idiot when I was 25. I could never have have done it. I don't know if, if it's a function of how we're raised these days as, as opposed to 100 years ago. I don't know. I think it's, yeah, everything's so instant now, instant gratification for everything, whereas I think there was a sense that, yeah, you had to wait and you had to build up some kind of stock before you could start spending it. And um, it is curious to me that all those people you mentioned, plus many, many more, none of them started out of college and instantly became a writer. There was Mm -hmm. always something else first, journalism often or whatever it may be. And I think it does make you a better writer. So in that sense, I thought, yeah, this is, I have this brief window of time. Because to be out of work at 40 is not great. But I felt I've got this, this is my last chance really to reinvent myself, to I know you said uh, your muses at the time were fear and hunger. <laughs> yeah, that'll that's motivating. It sure. I mean, and it was literally like that. You know, I um, when they when they finally fired me, they they gave me a payoff, and I settled my credit cards and all that kind of stuff. And I had seven months of living money in the bank. Yeah. Uh, so this had to happen within seven months, and that focused me. That, that seems that that actually sounds like an echo of the timeline you then stayed on for the next 25 years like i've got to turn this thing out in seven Uh, months (laughs) yeah it was it was and you know that's also something people don't see that it is it's not just about the book that you've written now it's about the next one and the next one and the next one you keep them coming that's how you build up credibility with the audience i think you become a, a reliable choice for them so as you get going on this i know you found a great agent who was hungry for the book could you tell the story of how you came up with the name lee child yeah that that was uh that dates back, getting on for 50 years. I was in uh, New York with my my wife. We'd just gotten, this was 1976, as I recall, and we'd just gotten married the year before. Um, and we were at her folks' place up in Westchester and uh, coming down to the city for, uh, you know, looking around and go to shows and so on. We went to a Broadway play. And we were taking that last train back north, uh, which I, you, I know you're familiar with that that thing. The last mm-hmm. train after the theater always packed. Right. And so we, we didn't get seats together. We just got random seats. And I was sitting next to this guy who started talking to me. Um, and it uh, turned out he was from Texas, I would guess, judging by his accent. And, uh, of course, as soon as I replied to him, he noticed my foreign accent and he said where you're from i said i'm from england and then he said in apropos of absolutely nothing really he said oh i've got a european car and i said have you what car have you got and back then in the 70s people may not remember but renault of france sold cars in the u.s and their smallest one the little compact hatchback in europe it's called the renault 5 just gets a model number but in the U.S., it was sold as a lacar, as a kind of Parisian chic thing, you know, yeah. for their marketing. Um, and that's the car that the guy had, but he didn't say that. I said, what car have you got? He said, I got Lee car. <laughs> and so I'm sure you find this to be true as well in your household and every single writer's household I've ever known. It's just constant word games all the time. And so from that moment on, everything was Lee this and Lee that. And uh, when our daughter was born some years later, she was Lee Baby. And then as she grew up a little bit, she was Lee Child. And so when I, I needed a pen name. Eureka. 
yeah. there it was. It had a warm <laughs> association for me. And it was also, because it's also a noun, just not just a name, I think it was easier for people to remember. And I think it was um, communicatable. Because, you know, especially back then, before any online stuff, this was such a word-of-mouth business. Right. And also because... In, it was all about physical bookstores where people browse from from left to right, and uh, they get fatigued early. And it's an absolute fact that if you're earlier in the alphabet, you do better because people notice you before they run out of energy. Brunt is a good one. Child is a right. good one. But think of our friends, you know, Holland Coben, Michael yeah. Connolly, Patricia Cornwell – there was a huge. Uh, that's a lot of C's. I hadn't thought a of that. Huge, I mean, literally a huge number of C's. I think something like the year I was plotting it out, sixty-three percent of uh, New York Times sales were authors beginning with C. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have it. Sounds a like a that. Gladwell book. Yeah. He's going to yeah. have to. Well, Gladwell is a Reacher fan, and uh, I think he responds to the same kind of thing. You know, the thinking that Reacher does, the sort of detail yeah. that he, he goes into. The Reacher name as well. You know, I often have written in libraries, and so when I'm reaching around for names for characters, sometimes I'll just turn around and look at the spines of books and look at things and put a couple names together. But you have an interesting story on how you came up with the name Jack Reacher as well. Yeah, the first name I wanted to be real, real simple because I had uh, I, I was already a Michael Connolly reader then. Uh, he was a few books in, and uh, it was clear to me he was going to be a major success because the talent was clearly there. So I thought, all right, don't go head-to-head with this guy. So whatever he was doing, I was going to do differently. So his hero was called Hieronymus Bosch. So I thought, all right, no fancy name for my guy. So his first name, Jack. And then what's the second name? And I was completely stuck on that. But as you say, I was out of work. I was at home starting this manuscript. And the major, major problem with being out of work and at home is that your partner assumes you're free to do errands. And so I remember one night looking forward to getting on with the book, still in its super early stages. And she said, no, no, we've got to go to the supermarket, and uh, there's a lot of stuff to haul home. And she's tiny, my wife, so I get enlisted for all these physical jobs. So I thought, all right, so we go to the store. And every single time that I ever go in a supermarket, there is always some little old lady who says, oh, you're a nice tall gentleman. Would you reach me that can? And Jane, who was with me, said she was worried. You know, we were out of work. We had a kid. It was, uh, it was tough. She was putting on a really, really brave face about it, but she was worried. And this lady said, could you reach me this can? And Jane said to me, you know what? If this writing gig doesn't work out, you could be a reacher in a supermarket. And I thought, reacher, that's a great name. And so that's where it came from. Eureka again, Jack Reacher. Yeah. So then Killing Floor comes out in 97, wins a bunch of awards. I remember we were talking earlier about our mutual friend Joe Cannon, and I was talking to him about you, and he was saying to me, you know, Doug, what I, what I love about Lee, when I read his books, he just has such command of the page. And I thought, you know, whether you're Don DeLillo or Stephen King or Lee Child, that is the highest compliment you can pay any writer. Yeah, and I would uh, – I love Joe for, for a similar sort of reason. Um, but, yeah, I felt – I felt the circumstances in which I did it were were the key. You know, this was not a kind of kind of like to do it thing. It was not a hobby. It was not a a long buried ambition coming to the f- forefront. 
it was absolutely had to happen. It was a survival mechanism. It had to work. Mm-hmm. It, uh, there was no possibility of it failing. It just couldn't fail. Otherwise, I was on, on a, in a terrible job market, you know, scratching around looking for something to do. It had to work. And I think that kind of determination produced that kind of confidence. Like that energy translated into your, your prose in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Furious energy. And um, knowing that it had to succeed, I think, did give it mm-hmm. a kind of bold, confident approach. And I, we touched on this earlier, but I wonder if the legal training, too, in a way. My wife is a former lawyer, and she has this old lawyer joke of, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter brief. And it just goes to the clear, concise kind of writing that's required of law or in legal training. And that's that's in your prose as well. It's it's, you know, brief, punchy, powerful, concise, clear prose. It is. And I that is one of the few lessons that I, I carried with me from television because the two things superficially sound similar, but they're really completely different uh, media. So there's not much transferable. But what what we were obsessive about in television was how is this being consumed? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is the manner in which it is being consumed by the viewer? Because that then influenced the way we presented it to them. And I was always very aware of that with books. How are books uh, consumed? And books like ours, for instance, are, you know, it's not some old gentleman in an oak panel library who spends five hours sitting in an armchair reading them. That's not ha- does, doesn't happen that way. These are busy people who read for maybe 20 minutes on the subway in the morning, then maybe they grab 20 minutes at their lunch break, 20 minutes on the subway back home, maybe 15 minutes before they fall asleep. Clarity is super important to them that Mm -hmm. there's nothing more annoying in that circumstance than, and I'm sure this has happened to you, happens to me all the time. You're reading a book and somebody says something and you think, wait a minute, who was this guy? And you've got to flip back eight pages to find out who he was or whatever. That's bad. You need absolute clarity. Help the reader. Understand the circumstance in which the reader is consuming it and help them out. So be clear. Be precise. Be exact. Never leave them in any doubt as to who is saying what and what is going on. I, you know that that definitely happens to me. And along those lines, I, I feel like I have these Alzheimer's moments all the time where I, I'll finish some tome of a autobiography or something like that or a biography of some great figure and I get to the end of it I'm like that is so fascinating I learned so much and then my wife would be like well what did you learn and it's like I think I remember about 2% of the book uh-huh. or or worse sometimes I'll pick up a, a novel by you know a writer and and I'll get like a third of the way in I'm like Jesus I've read this before like I like four yeah. years ago I already read this book but it takes me a third of the way to remember that on the other hand though that you're living in the moment I mean I do that too with especially history books um, mm. and science books I try and keep up with science and some of them I'll persevere I'll read and reread paragraphs until I'm pretty sure I understand what it's saying and I, I enjoy that in the moment but then exactly the next morning I could not tell you what was in, <laughs> right. in that paragraph so before we get into Reacher more specifically in the Amazon show, which is terrific, I watched, my whole family watched and we loved, I wanted to talk a little bit about process and, and lifestyle when you're writing. So I know you are, coffee and cigarettes are part of the, the deal as you're writing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I love coffee. Uh, I love cigarettes unapo- unapologetically. I like everything beginning with C, as you know, as you pointed out, <laughs> right. champagne, champagne, even yeah, yeah cocktails, uh, cannabis, cigarettes, caviar. 
Um, it's all good. So, and I, I made this discovery years and years ago that I thought it was just an anecdotal connection that was happening to me uh, uniquely that when I'm hungry, I mean seriously hungry, I am much more creative. And that's just a random association that I've always noticed. How long can that window last before you just well, cave in on yourself? I'm, I, I try and teeter on the edge, you know, for as hours as long as I possibly can. And I assumed that was just some idiosyncratic thing for me as an individual. But then I read some research that no, there's a very ancient connection in your brain. When you are hungry, the creativity part of your brain sparks up because you're supposed to be thinking about I, I better hunt something. I better find a better way of finding my food. I better find yeah. a, a better method of hunting down this animal. Uh, it's, it's biologically determined. When you're starving, your brain lights up with ingenuity. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't eat much. I try and be, um, I try and hover on the edge of collapse, basically, while I'm writing. And it, it gives me the, the kind of creative energy to do it. But the process for me, I'm unusual. A lot of my friends like to work in the morning. And uh, for me, my belief is that nothing of value is ever achieved in the morning. So I will start, I get up late, I start late, typically one or two o'clock in the afternoon, and then work as many hours until I hit that little, I think only the writer himself knows when you're hitting that limit. But I mean, obviously, you could write for 12 so you, hours. So you don't put a word count on it or an hour count just until you're sort of satisfied? Yeah, until I hit that point where I feel I have just dropped a level. You know, I've just dropped a notch now. And then do you try to leave something off for picking up the next day? Yeah, that's a really, really great tip. Uh, even stop halfway through a sentence so that you've got your first words for the next day, which then kickstarts your day. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, usually that lasts about six hours. I can do six hours before I... I detect the quality falling away and then towards the end of the book when I'm really into it I might go back to it at midnight and do another couple of hours or something but having said it's lonely and all of that those are the moment the hours that I love about it the because when it's going well there is no nothing more satisfying. So it's just you and Reacher doing doing your thing. It's almost uh, yeah, it's creative, like, fun, alone time in a way. It's like hanging out with somebody doing your thing, and then of course there are technical difficulties about about writing. That again is the opposite of what most people think. The big scenes, you know, the big fights, the big reveals are easy. Those are are the delightful, easy meet and drink things. It's the tiny things that are difficult. How do you get him from one room to the next room? How do you do a pivot or a transition from one scene to the next? Right, that you know it's not going to lose the reader's zest for the moment. Exactly, you know? or somehow just be too clunky and stupid. Yeah. And if you get that right, the, the euphoria of doing a great line, um, and it doesn't happen often. You know, I'm not saying that we're all geniuses living the dream, but... You know, in my career, there's probably been 10 or 20 times when I've just hit the perfect line or the perfect paragraph, and there's no pleasure better than that. So those hours of Did writing those, you, are Of those great. 10, just as a quick sidebar, and then I want to have a couple more process questions, but of those 10 or 20, did they make it into the screenplay? Some of them, yeah, some of them definitely did, mm -hmm. and... Uh, I, I love that, too, because that is somebody else picking up on the energy within that phrase that they think it's worth preserving. Right. Yeah. So you don't outline. I know that. Right. I don't. I, 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 
I often have one thing, could, might be a visual image, it might be even the single line of dialogue that I know will happen somewhere towards the end. So I've got this very, very vague target that somehow sets a slight tone or flavor for what I'm going to be doing. But then I just start at the beginning, try and think of a good opening line or a good first paragraph. And I will write it out even if I've got no idea what it means and um, or wh how it's going to affect anything or, or what is the significance. If it's a good first paragraph that grabs my attention, mm -hmm. then I think, okay, that's good enough. Now, what is the what is a good second paragraph and then a good third paragraph. It's interesting. The outlining like thing that. I feel like is the main dichotomy in writers because I'm, I'm a relentless outliner. I just, I start that way. I don't think I could face the empty page without having this big, you know, 30 page outline to encourage me to get there. And I think the, the outliners look at the non-outliners like, how, how do you do it? And the, the outliners are like, with the non-outliners, like, why would you do it? Yeah. Like, it, it takes away the energy, and you know. I see two difficulties with that. If it was me, I mean, everybody does it differently. Um, get ten writers together, you're going to hear fifteen different ways of doing it. Everybody does it so differently. But for me, outlining, I, w what I love is the story. You know, this is what happens. And if I had planned that out beforehand, then I know the story. I know how it ends. I'm bored with it. I want the next story. And to sit down and type that story out, I think, would be dull for me. And I think the dullness would show through. And the other thing that, that worries me about outlining is that I can identify um, many little detours or significant things that just occurred at totally in the spur of the moment mm -hmm. that I would not have in the outline That's and I was being forced away from that yeah so if you outline you're just at that point you just feel like you're executing on a blueprint that's out there and this yeah I mean for saps instance, something out of it in killing floor this uh fairly early in the book and it was um faithfully portrayed in in the Amazon series uh, Reacher has a fight in his in his prison cell and um, with a bunch of uh, a bunch of bad guys who are coming to basically terrorize them, he has this fight, wins, of course, and then in order to somehow make his point, he demands that one of the other prisoners gives him his uh, sunglasses. And for me, that was just filling a paragraph. It was just somehow characterizing Reacher. You know, the spoils of war. He's got to have a some kind of token tribute. And so he takes the sunglasses and he, he puts them on just for the fun of it. Mm. And then, um, you know, many scenes later, I suddenly realized, wait, I can use that. I c and that was one of the clues that kind of unlocked the entire conspiracy. Uh, they, they were looking for a guy with glasses and they picked on Reacher and he's, he can't understand why mm. nobody knows him why would they pick on him and then he suddenly understands it's because he was wearing the glasses that was a great reveal sort of you know mid, mid show I remember right and that series. was completely accidental when yeah. I was writing it that was just something that literally happened on the spur of the moment and I feel like there have been a few of those and if I'd been working to an outline I wouldn't have seen it I wouldn't have had that little yeah. path to go down it would have made it a a weaker product, but I, like I say, you know, everybody does it differently, and people are horrified by the way I do it. It's it's like 
jumping off a building um, with no guarantee that you're going to land. Well, you have to have certain gifts to make it work that way, but you're working to your gifts. Speaking of different ways to do it, Harlan Coben, when he writes, he's sitting in trains in the back of Ubers and things like that, which is not your way. So you like to be one place indoors. Is there a certain desk or chair setup you like? It doesn't really matter where I am. I mean, I always make myself a comfortable room, you know, with a nice desk and all of that. But that doesn't really matter. I mean, my peculiarity is that you're quite right. I mean, lots of people write on planes, write in the hotel room, all that kind of thing. I can't do anything. I'm paralyzed if I know that I have got to finish at a certain time. Uh, you know, if I'm going out to dinner or something and I, I know I've got to finish at 6 o'clock, um, that ruins the whole day for me, even though I might well finish by 6 o'clock naturally. If I know I've got to, it just paralyzes the whole day. Just for some reason, I need it to be open-ended. So I can't work in an Uber. I can't work on a plane. Um, I, I need that feeling of uninterrupted yeah. uh, day with no end stop to it. So that day-to-day time pressure, how do you square that with your sort of month-to-month time pressure? But there's a lot of pressure I think the world came to expect a new joyous ride with Reacher every September. And so you almost have this season to season thing of where I've got to be by March and then April and then I got to hand in by this date and then I'm on tour on that date. It's yeah. a lot of pressure to turn that out every year. It's not like just hopping on an exercise bike and working. You got to come up with this stuff. Yeah. And it was, uh, it's perpetually intimidating. Um, you know, I, it's the one major disappointment in my life is that it didn't get any easier, or at least it didn't feel any better. You know, you're still worried about it. Um, even though you've done, you know, you can have done 10, 15, 20 books, you start the 21st, and it's still the same old feeling. And, you know, is this going to be any good? Am I going to get it done? I always start in September. And um, I'm not a particularly fast writer in terms of word count. Because as I say, I'm, in, I'm doing all the thinking as I'm going along. Uh, so overall, it's a fairly efficient process because, you know, I don't go back and do major revisions. I don't really change much once it's finished because I've, I've thought about it every day. It's kind of pulled out of my brain day by day by day so that I'm confident that it's as good as it can be by the, by the time I finish it. But I'm, I always start out hoping to do 1,500 words a day which to a lot of uh, genre writers is nothing really. Um, but for me, 1,500 is a comfortable day. And then inevitably, I'm, I'm behind schedule by about January, February. So then I have to up it to like 2,000 words a day, mm-hmm. which for me is major. And then I, I push on and I, I would typically finish it in March, let's say April. So it's about a six-month process. I once... I, I, for a few years, I kept diaries, and I would just note the the uh, word total on every working day, and I reviewed them retrospectively. And I, I figure it takes between eighty and ninety working days for me to do a whole book, and um, you know, which is basically three months. But of course, uh, because of other commitments, that right. spreads out a little bit to probably five or six months. So to talk about Reacher and how he's he's portrayed in film and TV. I think you've sold the movie rights to all 20-plus books already. In the early days, there were a ton of actors. I, I looked this up. I know The Rock at one point was uh-huh. considered for all this. I think it was probably the early 2000s, maybe before he was such a huge star. But Will Smith, Russell Crowe, Daniel Craig. But one time you told me 
the name of someone who was not an actor, but was someone you could, years and years ago, this is, that you could picture in the role. Do you remember the name you mentioned to me? Uh, I'm blank. I'm, I'm uh, Howie. Uh, That's right. Howie American. Was a, yeah, what was his second name? Howie Long. Howie American Long, right, yeah. yeah. He was, uh, I mean, sports people in general, yeah, football players or in Britain, rugby players. Uh, I mean, Howie was a good-looking guy, yeah. you know, which is why he became Well, I think a, a the guy face. that you have currently on the Amazon show, uh, Alan Richson, he looks like a young Howie to me. Yeah, he really does, and that was always the picture I had in my mind of uh, physically large, intimidating um, a little less handsome probably than Howie, who was, you know, a very good-looking guy. Um, there was one particular English rugby player that I that I thought was the right look. Not that I would ever say it to his face since he was, you know, 6'5 and 250, but an ugly-looking guy. And uh, that would have been the, the, the type of person I wanted. And then, of course, when it gets into... Uh, you know, movies and, and TV and all that kind of casting mm-hmm. issue, there are no ugly actors. You know, this right. is the thing. Yeah. They're all good looking. And so right away you're into a different arena. And, um, yeah, I remember lots of those meetings um, with with the names that you just mentioned. And, because um, a lot of them are small. Um, right. Daniel Craig is a small guy. Yeah. Uh, actors as a whole are small. Well, I like this guy you have in the show, Alan Richson. He's great. But the Tom Cruise years, despite being a smaller guy, that had to have been great. I mean, who wouldn't want the number one movie star in the world for your brand's Particularly internationally, in Asia, he is a huge name that had to have been good for book sales and the brand overall. That is, yeah, very perceptive comment. I mean, that clearly comes from an insider because that was my thinking entirely, that um, I knew two things. Number one, that there was going to be immense pushback from the book readers about the fact that Cruz is not a physical giant. Uh, but I was equally aware, absolutely, this is the glo- global number one movie star. Yeah. And, um, ha- and He's ha- having kind of a renaissance now, too, with that Maverick movie. He yeah. seems to be back on top. And he's a terrific, he was just great to work with. I mean, a terrific guy. Really one of the most pleasant experiences of my life, just hanging with him. And you you're, you do cameos generally yeah. in the movie. So you got to, I know you were on set at least that day, but did you get to spend some time with him? Oh, a lot. Yeah. We did social things together. We would go to the theater. We would, um, he works a lot in Britain because there's a, a new, huge new facility just north of London that's mm-hmm. great for movie making. And um, if I'm there, we'll you know, we'll go to soccer games and stuff like that. And uh, it's funny. I think a terrific uh, man. I saw an interview. I think it was Russell Crowe, maybe because he knew Nicole Kidman or something like that. But he was he was saying that I guess through Nicole Kidman, he got to know Tom Cruise a bit and said the same things you're saying. Super nice guy. Scientology came up one time, and he kind of briefly explained it. He said, "Look, if it if it's something you want to know more about, let me know," and just dropped it there. But you know, kind of explained that sort of thing and. You know, yeah. he, he seems like a terrific guy from from. It never came accounts. up at all for for me, and you know, you hear these bizarre um, accusations that he's always accompanied by minders from the church and so on. And having spent that long in television, I know my way around a, a location set, and there were no unexplained people there. I mean, all of that was mm-hmm. nonsense. And he he was he was really heavily into the theory of storytelling. That's what I found fascinating was that uh, that's all he cared about. There was zero ego involved. At the beginning of every scene, we'd sort of you know, go over things. And his question was not, how do I make myself look good in this scene? His question was always, how do we tell the story better here? 
Mm-hmm. Um, even to the point where some of the great lines, he was given away to the co-stars because he felt that flows make better. The, make the product better. Makes the product better. That's great. Even to the point where I remember at one point we were all saying, Tom, this is a Tom Cruise movie. Stop giving your lines away. And uh, it's like a lot of celebrities, uh, so-called, the, the, the gap between the public image and the reality is huge. I have come to believe that my wife and I would go on vacations and, as you know, we'll occasionally get the Daily Mail, you know, taking a photo. And uh, it's just there were there are times it sort of ebbs and flows a little bit. Sometimes they're trying to make you look bad. Sometimes they're not. But uh, you, you never know quite what to believe. No, you really don't. And some of those papers, especially in Britain, are just uh, murderous for that. Mm. And um, all you can do is ignore them. So now you are stepping away from the series a little bit, and you have a younger brother, Andrew Grant, who is independently and separately a terrific and successful writer. I guess he will now undergo the magical transformation of Andrew Grant to Andrew Child. It's almost like like Gandalf the Gray to Gandalf the White. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, from my point of view, I've... I'm ultra strict with myself, and I've always been, as a reader, totally aware that there are points in a writer's career where they just run out of gas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, famous examples in the past, uh, either they get lazy and drunk or they just run out of energy or and they're giving you an inferior product. And I don't like that. As a reader, I, I resented that. So going into it, I made myself a promise that I would never do that. I would never phone it in. I would always be super alert to uh, how— Have you run out of gas for this franchise or for the the profession? I think for the profession. I mean, I've been—I've done one character for—I did 25 books of my own on this one character. And— you know, and it's what that's that's enough. You know, that is the profession. Mm-hmm. I was the guy that wrote Reacher. It wasn't that I was a but writer. But would you ever do the the J.K. Rowling? You know, she she abandons Harry Potter as you might, and then she comes out as Robert Galbraith. Would you do? I probably something else? I probably wouldn't. Um, you know, because much as I love writing, I I love reading better, and so my plan is to. Uh, you know, once we've transitioned and Andrew is, is doing it 100%, uh, my plan is just to kick back and read all the stuff I haven't had time to before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what it's like. I bet you've got a thousand books piled up that you haven't had time to get to yet. Imagine if you could, you know, the fun of that. So eventually it'll be 100%, Andrew. How does the co-writing work as a practical matter on these next books in terms of well, sharing the sharing the writing process. Th- that's real tricky because, as we've just said, you know, there really is no writing process for Reacher. You just make it up as you go along. And Andrew is not a huge outliner. I don't think he's in your league in terms of detailed outline, but he he likes a much more of a plan than I ever did. And that was the hard adjustment for him. Uh, you know, we would talk, we would write the first little bit, and then he would say, "Well, hmm, what happens now?" And I say, well, I've got no idea, you know. I've, I don't know until we until we do it. I don't know what's going to happen. And it it that was unusual to him. And it took him, uh, you know, the first book, the second book, really to to settle down to that. And um, so now we got the third book uh, just a, just coming out right now, and it is. Um, 
I really sense that Andrew is totally at home with it now. So is it now at the point where he'll sort of write the first draft and you'll bounce some ideas around, or are you writing drafts and? Well, we most of it is talking. You know, we sort of Mm -hmm. we think, what is the mood? You know, what is the feel? What is the likely location going to be? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it hard? Is it soft? Uh, You know, those intangible things, and. I've got to admit, Andrew's probably a better plotter than I am. You know, he can come up with more complicated plots that merge toward the end in a very satisfying way. And he's really good at at supporting characters. Uh, I think, I mean, I think some of my supporting characters came out really good, but he he can do that effortlessly. So in a lot of ways, uh, I'm real happy to just let him run with it. Uh, most of our time, we sort of spend, what about this? What about that? What if he does this? Uh, how about if he goes there? Uh, a lot of it is is sort of is spitballing just out loud. I'm looking forward to reading the next one that you guys write. You've maintained the franchise in a great way, but I hope you also will pick up the pen or the the keyboard again. I don't, you could write a glad warp. Your observations on human behavior are so terrific. You're such a, a student of history and life i would love to uh to see you well that's very nice going. i did write one thing i wrote a non-fiction thing for um the times literary supplement they started publishing small books uh word essay about the hero uh which i found fascinating from the point of view of we obviously invent heroes and erect heroes and have relationship with what we imagine as a hero you know why what do we what do we want from them what are we getting from them um why do we invent them uh so that was a really cool uh excursion for me to do a bit of non-fiction non-fiction is very hard because you can't just make it up you know it has to be real and uh you know, we have friends in common who write uh, journalism and who write nonfiction stuff, and I admire the hell out of them because, you know, that's a real responsibility. If writing fiction, I don't like the way something sounds or looks, I'll just change it. Um, uh, but you, nonfiction, you've got this immense responsibility to be truthful. Bound to the truth, yeah. 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 So at the end of the show, we usually do a quick round of questions <laughs> that I'll just fire away at you. And you yeah, a little more champagne for that, I'll... Mm-hmm. Have some too. These are all easy ones, sort of like the, uh, you know, the Times, books on the nightstand stuff. Favorite few TV series that you would recommend to the listeners here? Well, during lockdown, we watched um, How to Get Away with Murder, which was Viola Davis. It was a network show on ABC, and that was um, ninety-six episodes uh, altogether. Absolutely fantastic, hypnotic, a real jumbled up timeline. Um, you know, things revealed before they'd even happened. It was very interesting structure, great characters, great premise. I would say, I mean, obviously, you've got to watch Re- Reacher season one and two on Amazon, but after that, what try how to get away with murder? It was okay. a really terrific show. All right, I, I just wrote that down, so I will do it. Books on the nightstand, but not not ones that are asking you for a blurb. Things you've paid some money for. <laughs> I uh, I read a lot of um, uh, history and a lot of uh, like human anthropology and stuff like that. So I've got a stack of books on my nightstand about Neanderthal people, which there's a lot of great research about Neanderthals. They're assumed to have been these brutish. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of ignorant types, but actually they turn out to be uh, r- very smart, strong, healthy, 
bigger brains than we had, very uh, socially compassionate. There was a fantastic discovery. Aren't we something like one or two percent? Yeah, most of us all in our DNA. If you're if you're not a sub-Saharan African person um, who stayed in the original gene pool, then yeah, we are up to around about two, sometimes four percent Neanderthal. And uh, there was a discovery made where there had been clearly this Neanderthal man seriously injured probably at, at the age of around 25, so that he was uh, incapable of hunting anymore. He was useless as far as the tribe was concerned. But the skeleton shows that all those injuries healed, and he lived for maybe another 15 years to be a 40-year-old. So for 15 years, they cared for him, and they fed him, and they, they looked after him in a way that is would be considered very modern, but this was 50,000 years ago. Um, so there's a lot to be learned from the Neanderthals and a lot to be learned about our previous assumptions about mm-hmm. primitive people were not all that primitive. That stuff is I, – I love that same type of book. I remember reading Guns, Germs, and Steel years ago, which is just a – I don't know, that's probably 25 years ago that came out. But that is a classic and opened my eyes to so much of human history. Sure. It's fascinating. Favorite book as a kid, let's say younger than 14 or so. Ah, for, uh, the one that really, the individual book that, I mean, it's hard to mention now, it's called The White Rajar by a writer called Nicholas Montserrat, who was very famous for a wartime story called The Cruel Sea. But this was um, a, really a British Empire story, and it fascinated me. And It had a good brother and a bad brother, and I identified very closely with me and my elder brother. You know, I'm the bad brother. He's the good brother. And um, it had the first, oh, my God, plotting reveal that I can ever remember. I mean, a really terrific one. Mm-hmm. And so I I loved that book as a kid. Now it seems horrendously out of date in terms of, you know, its colonial attitudes and so on. But uh, at the time, as an adventure story, it just knocked my socks off. Right. Favorite book festival? Uh, honestly, my favorite, I love them all for different reasons, but the one that I really like the best in terms of being relaxed is the Harrogate uh, Crime Fiction Festival in Britain because it's the only one that has only one thing going on at any one time. And that reduces the anxiety in the attendees because, you know, you go to the big conferences. And the people that have paid their money to come are always in a quandary. Should I see this guy or should I see that guy or this other guy? Because there's six things going on at once. And it produces a level of anxiety in the people there that Harrogate avoids by just having one thing at a time and then a little break mm-hmm. and then the next thing. It's serene and very peaceful. All right. This last question is going to be important to all Reacher fans out there. And his love life is always a matter of speculation. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in and out of a few romances over the course of the books. Who would Reacher's celebrity crush be? Or not? It, maybe crush isn't the right <laughs> word for Reacher. That doesn't seem exactly Reacher. But who would, who would Reacher go for? Well, Reacher loves smart women. Um, and, of course, he's not averse if they're good looking, too. So I think... You know, they're on our TV every night. There's a, there's a range of uh, especially political commentators who are good looking, but also clearly, you know, smart, intelligent, well informed. 
And he wouldn't necessarily have to even agree with them. He would just be fascinated being in their company. And so, yeah, you know, watch uh, watch any of the, the cable shows with the uh, the interviews and the politicians and all of that. And, and one of those anchors. Okay. Reacher would reach. That's funny. Well, you can tell Reacher from me that from personal experience, I recommend it. Yeah, I was thinking it wouldn't be a Kardashian type and it wouldn't either be like a, a Ronda Rousey MMA thing. I, I was I was wondering maybe the uh, the Finnish prime minister might be yeah, smart and now, attractive. Yeah, she is something else that uh, lets or, her hair down a little. Or the New Zealand one, um, Jacinda Ardern, who yeah, very accomplished, very smart. Because uh, Reach's problem is that he falls for smart women, and the smarter the woman is, the more they understand. Yeah, this is going to be great for twenty four hours, but there's no future in it. And so Reacher is lazily regarded as a love him and leave him type. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. It's them that throw him out. It's them that say, this ain't going to work, bud. And uh, he has to put up with that. That's interesting. I, so it could be a sort of a classic bodyguard tale. He could get on a security detail for one of these young, attractive prime ministers and then yeah, I mean, there's a, throw him out. There's a... Sto- I mean, obviously, a lot of stories there. People have people have done those, but you feel it. I mean, I I don't necessarily have bodyguards or anything, but you 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 go around with publicists, and there's something about being inside that bubble, where you know, day after day, city after city, you you're with some the same person looking after you. Mm-hmm. You do have this strange intimacy with them, that would make it very easy to um, to get very close. Yeah. Well, Lee. It has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming in. I know you're you're in transit from uh, the UK, passing through the East Coast. So it's, thank you so much for stopping in. So great to see you again. Great to see you too, and I'm glad you got this thing going. It's uh, it should be wonderful. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.